Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, no surprises, we're still talking about coronavirus. We're still here in the IPA's working from home studios trying to work out when are we going to get out of this frozen phase that we're in as there is uh, something like 26 cases across Australia for the entire day. Is it time to start lifting restrictions? And what happens after that? To address these questions, we've assembled a crack team today, including some big brains who've already put together a soon-to-be-released book on how we find our way out of the current social and economic crisis brought on by the pandemic. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and in a moment I'll be introducing those big brains. But first I should mention that this program is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs, which, uh, and if you're not already a member, please do join or donate to see how you can support this podcast and our research and do what you can to get Australia moving again. So first of all, let me introduce my regular co-host. He's an adjunct fellow at the IPA, but his day job he is at the RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. It's um, exciting to be able to talk about a book that I've written on the podcast and um, uh, introduce our co-authors and have a chat about that. Yeah, no, terrific. And I will throw to one of those co-authors now, also an adjunct fellow at the IPA, but from RMIT University, Professor Jason Potts. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you back. Uh, a, uh, a rare treat, and uh, but certainly a very <laughs> timely one, given the importance of the issues that we're talking about. And, of course, we have another regular, which is the IPA Director of Research, Dan Wilde. G'day, everyone. Good to be back on. Yeah, great great to have you, mate. Great to have you. So um, uh, we'll, we will start today talking about this, this new book. Uh, today is Wednesday, the 22nd of April. There are some topical burning issues, uh, but we'll talk about the book first, and then I think that'll give us a nice framework to actually examine what's happening in Australia right at the moment. Chris, take us away. Yeah, so we've um, uh, very urgently um, uh, written up a book on how to unfreeze the economy. We're calling it Cryoeconomics, How to Unfreeze an Economy After a Pandemic. And the um, argument is pretty simple, that the governments have, in the process of trying to deal with the pandemic, the governments have basically shut down our economies or really substantially reduced economic activity. Um in order to deal with the problems that that causes, which is, of course, mass unemployment, they've had this idea that we can put the economy into hibernation or we can freeze it or we can suspend it or we can put it into a, um, an induced coma, all these metaphors that we're seeing lying around. Well, our book is um, um, not about that decision, but it's about, okay, well, now that they've tried to do this, then how on earth are we going to unfreeze it? How are we going to get back to the prosperity we had in 2019. Um, and, and there's really two parts, and I think we should talk about the first part um, uh, initially, and I might throw to you, Jason. This is the idea of freezing an economy or putting an economy into hibernation. And our argument is that that's not really possible. But I might ask Jason just to have a little description of, of what we mean by freezing and unfreezing there. Yeah, so the idea here is is that um, we, we just want to pause time. In, in an ideal sense, there's a we're going to deal with a public health crisis and lots of economic activity involves putting people in proximity, which creates a public health hazard. So interestingly, the medical treatment for this disease is actually to stop the economy working. Um, so that's the thing that everyone's decided to do, and there's, there's, a, there's a strong, I mean, that's an obvious thing that needs to happen. Um, the problem is, is what happens after that, because what you've just done is we've frozen an economy, we've locked everything in place, all the contracts are shut down, all activity ceases other than the sort of things needed to, to urgently take place. But we've never, ever done this before. Like We've dealt with business cycles before, we've dealt with depressions and recessions and all sorts of business fluctuations that have come from inside an economy where the role of public policy is to counteract that, to, you know, to um, spend when, um, for governments to spend when, 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 when um, consumers don't. And that's the, that logic. But the idea of freezing an economy and then the idea that we snap our fingers and it just comes back out again, that has never, ever 
happened before. So first of all, we're not sure what will happen when we try and unfreeze it. Um, what the book is about is what we think will happen, and we're really worried about this because what we expect to happen is, is that a lot of the contracts and interactions and connections um, will just have disappeared. Right? They're, they're not going to be relevant. A lot of the preferences and consumer demands will have changed in the meantime. Um, and what's going to ha- need to happen is a huge amount of rapid adaptation. And for that to happen, we need the institutional settings of the economy to be maximally flexible. We need enormous amounts of entrepreneurial adaptation to to new circumstances. And we think that the actual policy response needed here isn't a standard sort of business cycle counter, um, you know, fiscal or monetary sort of um, counter cyclical policy response, but is actually much closer to a deep deregulatory response where the idea is, is to give the economy the flexibility it needs to adjust. So I guess in that in that context, what we're trying to think about is um, what are the debates that we're going to be happen after we're out of lockdown. So and I and I recognise that this is sort of one step ahead of where we are because of course governments are still in lockdown. But what we're seeing coming down the path is all these claims for we, we've spent so much money now we need to spend even more money. We're going to need massive fiscal stimulus to boost demand like we did in the global financial crisis. Well, we think that that's precisely the wrong direction to go because it gets the problem precisely wrong. What we need to do is we need to get governments back out of the economy and we need to allow entrepreneurs and businesses to adapt to the new post-COVID reality. Yes, I think uh, the authors have done a good job, uh, Chris and Jason, on pointing out that uh, it, it can't possibly reset to where it was on on February one or March one. Uh, that uh, economies are such dynamic things, and and some of the some of the adaptations we've already seen that you've talked about. Uh, you make the point that you know some of them will be will become permanent, and so whatever's coming out of it, it, it it's got to find a new uh, way of operating, and so it needs the maximal flexibility to do that. It's it's both. Um, we have a natural human desire, I think, to see things return to normal. Um, but certainly, you know, in a, in a business sense, in a commerce sense, which is, I think, what we mostly focus on today, um, it's it's not going to be uh, exactly like it was. And uh, and certainly the old the old nostrums that uh, you know we'll just go down to Philip Lowe and ask him to another, you know. You know, print a bit more money, or you know, a bit of modern monetary theory. The idea that you know those kind of things could actually take care of it are, are just risible. But um, but they That's do need to be argued against. The, the the world is going to be incredibly different, and not just because of the pandemic, but because of all the stuff that we've learned during the pandemic. Um, uh, really simple things like people who are um, learning to cook while they're stuck at home, rather than going out for to um uh, to restaurants to eat but also you know we've we've basically just sent the entire white collar community of australia to work from home the companies that have done that have learned about how to get them uh, their their call centers their managers all of it to function at home we're gonna we're, we're not going to forget that information we're going to lock in a lot of these new practices. And so the idea that we could have just frozen and pick up where we left off is obviously nonsense. Now, the really worrying thing is that we're trying to freeze these people in place. We're trying to freeze employers. That's the idea behind the JobKeeper scheme, to keep people in the same companies. Now, uh, I think there's an argument for that, but um, we have to recognize there's going to be massive unemployment. There's going to be massive job losses the moment we unfreeze and we've got to start thinking about that now chris can i just come on that i think because i think it's actually worse than that and in the sense that what, you, <laughs> right. what you've got is is um you know first of all we're not going back this you know the so, so much has changed in terms of preferences and technology but the vast technology shock here is, is something that i think has also been widely underappreciated that what you've got is a massive acceleration of a whole lot of digital technologies that have been sort of building over the past few decades. And you see this very clearly in education. We're just universities, which for decades have been trying to sort of develop courses online and really struggled with that, just suddenly got it together and have done that. Um, Vast amounts of the consumer-facing economy have pivoted to digital 
you know, very quick, rapid um, succession. So you've got right in the middle of this freeze, you've actually got this incredible acceleration of technology of technological adoption. Now, that's the thing that creates these enormous business model challenges and entrepreneurial challenges to try and figure out how to rebuild businesses and 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 therefore jobs and, and other sort of parts of the economy will need an enormous amount of reconfiguration afterwards. So this this notion that this 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 freeze metaphor that we're going back to something um, that we had before is just wildly inaccurate and, and, and misleading. Instead, there's going to be an enormous need for rapid entrepreneurial adapt adaptation across the entire economy. And what that means is that business models won't fit, regulatory environments and contexts won't fit, um, industrial organizational patterns won't fit, just massive the economy right now in the middle of this freeze is in massive disequilibrium. And if we're going to come out of it in any sort of way that for the economy to then grow and strengthen and pay back the enormous debt that it will, that it will have incurred in, in just surviving this, um, we're going to need um, a far more entrepreneurial economy than anything we've ever had before. And this is the policy challenge. Can, can I ask Dan um, just to spend a moment on this idea that we this we are in uncharted waters, which uh, uh, Dan, you've been uh, the, the economic analysis your your team's been keeping everyone up to date with. I mean, this this is just unprecedented the um, uh, the speed and the severity of what we've seen in terms of um, of both official levels of unemployment and uh, and what what are the real underlying levels. Yeah, that's right, and I think um, it's far worse than what a lot of people first expected in terms of the um, scale of the job losses and also the pace of them. Um, and I think most people are still in shell shock about what has happened just in terms of the the heavy nature of restrictions that have been imposed upon them, but also how quick they've happened. And uh, really, it's just been done with the stroke of a pen. That's been one of the, I think, challenging components of this is there's been very little debate or scrutiny in Parliament or otherwise um, over a lot of these measures. Um, in terms of the... Uh, the concept of hibernation, I completely agree um, that it is a, a bit of a false concept. You can't, you know, put people's lives temporarily into hibernation and then have the government revivify them or thaw them out. Um, and I would note that it was it was three academics from the Australian National University that came up with that concept. And only an academic, you know, who's completely sheltered from any of the negative consequences of these government-imposed sanctions could think that people can just sit at their homes um, you know, and have the government build a bridge, which was the metaphor uh, Philip Lowe used, and then come out the other side, you know, completely unscathed and continue on as previously was the case. Um, but clearly that's that's just not going to happen. There's gonna, A lot of people that are losing their jobs now will never, ever work again, and a lot of people that are closing their businesses will never open those businesses again. So uh, this is not just a crisis. I think this is a tragedy um, and humanity. Uh, you know, it's, it's bordering on a humanitarian tragedy of biblical proportions. Yeah, and I guess the question is, um, uh, how do we deal with that? So that that decision um, uh, has been made, and um, what are the policy settings that we need to get us to 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 at least mollify the effects of that tragedy to get people back into work, and hopefully to get the economy back to the levels of prosperity, relative prosperity we saw in. 2019. Now, our argument is um, uh, the sort of policies that we were interested in before the crisis because they made us more prosperous. So things like cutting red tape and deregulation, things like lower, flatter, simpler taxes, things like labor market deregulation and um, uh, particularly, those are actually precisely important because they make an economy more flexible and more adap adaptive. Um, for example, red tape that prevents you from entering a new industry or makes it hard or slow or expensive to change the way you do business is precisely the sort of red tape that is going to prevent us from employing people quickly after the crisis is over. Now, Scott Morrison, uh, yesterday, I think it was, which was Tuesday um, uh, made a argument that when they when they have the budget, which has been moved to October, they'll be talking again about tax cuts and deregulation. Now, I think that's that's good. I'm, I, I I support the government's attitude in that, but it better not be the same old deregulatory policies that we've saw, seen year in and year out, 
which have been these sort of half-hearted, sort of tidy the statute books type things. I, I think the government needs to understand the scale of the problem, which is to your point, Dan, the um, unprecedented nature of what they've done, the damage that this has taken on the economy and employers and really have some big ambitions. Otherwise, we're just not going to be able to deal with the crisis. Well, I think that's right. And it's also going to be, we are ultimately going to be facing, I think anyway, a pretty prolonged period of time where uh, things like tourism um, is going to be heavily truncated, for example. Um, It's unclear when the international borders will open again. And there is a significant component of our economy that is dependent upon tourism, on international students, on travel. Um, It's not immediately apparent how those sectors will recover. Um, If you look at what's happening in North Queensland, at the moment, anybody that's you know employed in the tourism industry up there is just that uh, they've got taxis lined up outside airports just with no one to take anywhere because there's no one coming in um, to the country. So uh, it, it does raise a broader issue that I want to touch on, and I would be interested in your views on this, which is uh, I think what this economic collapse has demonstrated is that Australia has, going into the crisis, a very deep structural um, economic problems where we were heavily dependent upon a narrow number of sectors in particular. Um, I mean, I'll give you some an example. We had um, two-thirds of our economic growth since the GFC has been from population growth underpinned by mass migration, um, which is something that's not going to be sustainable in the decades to come. Now, that's the inverse of what was the case from the Keating recession to the GFC when two-thirds of our growth came from productivity or labour force um, changes. So I think it's been, over the last decade, really quite lazy um, government at the state and Commonwealth level that has not engaged in any kind of structural reform to pivot our economy towards uh, you know greater productivity and less reliance on population growth. Yeah, look, I think then that the diagnosis is correct, but I would point in the direction of um, again, I think new technology is going to be the, the fundamental thing that's going to shift here. Um, what we're sort of observing is a enormous demand for. Um, digital production, um, digital infrastructure for re- rebuilding industries. And again, we, we sort of see this very clearly in the industry that I'm in, in, in education, um, that that is probably going to pivot significantly from a face-to-face thing that we all do um, in crowded rooms to something that is delivered on digital platforms, which means it can be global, which means it becomes an export industry far more easily, which means it becomes sort of far more competitive. And that kind of business model innovation built upon new tech infrastructure is the way in which we rebuild an economy that looks different, that it'll have different industries and different sectors and different comparative advantages in it. And, you know, Australia's is um, is as well positioned as anyone is for this type of revolution. If we make those, um, the main thing standing in the way is sort of barriers to adoption of those technologies, um, which often comes from regulatory protections of existing business models or ways of doing things, whether this is occupational licensing or um, just various other forms of government permissioning of sectors and so on. So a lot of the sort of rent-seeking in an economy is actually holding back um, innovation and adaptation. And where that adaptation is likely to come from is new technologies into the space. So, I mean, in a sense, this could be a huge opportunity for Australia um, if we can enable this type of rapid, um, innovative, entrepreneurial discovery and experimentation of new business models and, and, and industries. Yeah, Dan, I, I think your, your point is right. Um, and it's interesting... In the middle of a crisis, it's sort of hard to step back and see the um, the macro level, how this fits into the broad sweep of Australian history or the sort of um, uh, cultural and economic criticisms that we've had over the last decade while we've been relatively prosperous. Um, but it is really interesting to think about how this fits into that policy stagnation, that, um, that political and economic complacency that we have been talking about um, uh, certainly since the Howard years, but but um, uh, much earlier as well. Um, and one of the things that I've always been concerned about, as as regular listeners will know, is the incredibly narrow debate that we're that we're allowed to have in Australia, just even about like taxation matters and so forth. And 
Um, at no better um, example of that was when Malcolm Turnbull um, declared that he was comfortable with the states raising income taxes, a policy that lasted, I think, eight hours or something like that before he had to roll it back after it was shattered down. But it just it's just a really powerful illustration of the fact that we, we were very uncomfortable talking about anything outside of incredibly narrow range of policies. But this crisis has dropped that taste for um, the status quo, something just extraordinarily. And, and I've been looking at the sort of regulations that have been suspended during this crisis. It has gone almost without any comment, for example, that the Australia, the content requirements imposed on Australian television uh, um, for Australian content have been suspended during this crisis. Now, it's hard to imagine a more politically sensitive, more powerfully defended regulation than Australian content standards, yet they have been cancelled or suspended at least with almost no comment, uh, uh, just overnight. No one cares. Um, and what I think, the if we're to look at opportunities from this crisis, it's not nice to look at a crisis as an opportunity, but if we're to look at opportunities, it's that complacency may be broken. We have the opportunity to make the bigger decisions that we've needed to do so for the last couple of decades to get us genuine productivity um, uh, boosts and economic growth. The stakes are really high here. And one of the things I appreciate about what um, the authors of this book have, are trying to do is find a new language. Uh, you talk, for instance, about the difference between, you know, the, a V-shaped recovery, which is what some people are hoping for, or a U-shaped recovery, which is what more people are predicting, which is um, you, uh, you know, you have a dip and then a long flat line and then you go back up again. And as you point out... Um, there's two problems with that. One is it could be an L-shaped recovery. You never come back up at, at, at all. But also, just returning back to where you were, won't be sufficient. We'll have accumulated debt. Um, and if you look through the various sectors of the Australian economy um, that uh, make up you know significant proportions of GDP, uh, say like tourism, uh, education, um, which we'll have to find a whole new biz business model, um, hospitality, um, expect the baseline actually to be lower and as we go in you know as we approach a trillion dollars worth of debt uh, which we'll get to very quickly just arithmetically to be chugging along at you know one one and a half percent you know real growth which is almost the best we can hope for under the model that we had that's just not good enough Australia will be mired as you say in the book in, in stagflation again we'll, we'll manage to have high unemployment and low growth um, with and we'll see what happens with inflation, but you know we we actually need uh, that that high growth scenario coming out of it. Otherwise, we'll never escape sort of the 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 debt and low productivity trap that we'll find ourselves in. Just just reverting back to where we were is not good enough. Yeah, that's right. So um, it's got to be. So we describe it as a two stage recovery, which actually looks like a square root graph. So we call it a square root recovery. So it's not V form or a V shaped recovery where the economy just bounces back, and it's not U shaped recovery. It's got to be a two stage recovery. Um, there's got to be the first instance where we allow the restaurants to open, we allow people to go back into their offices and so forth. And that's where the debate is right now. But after that, there's got to be a huge period of high growth. And you're right, we can't accept 1% or 2% growth per year. We need to have the sort of growth that we are capable of having, that we've had in the past, in order to return us to relative prosperity, to get to pay off the extraordinary debt that we'll have accumulated, to pay off the extraordinary promises that we're probably going to have locked in. Um, so, for example, you know, we've, we're, the federal government is now offering free childcare um, uh, to parents. I, I, I don't see a world in which that gets abolished anytime soon. So we've got to, we're going to have to pay for it. We're going to have to pay for the larger calls on Social Security um, that will be likely to be very permanent. So we're going to need some very, very vibrant private sector activity. We're going to need to be able to launch the private sector. Yeah, because I mean, I, I would just come in on that. I think I think what what this will look like is not a sort of mixed economy where you've got a sort of strong regulatory state um, governing a sort of well-known set of sectors that are, that are controlled, but rather there's there's going to be a strong demand for 
a lot of you know public health and a lot of um, so the welfare state is is is, is probably going to um, need to be or will be quite so strong and buttressed after this, but. In order to pay for that, the market economy needs to be incredibly vigorous. Um, so you, what we're going to have then is this, this sort of new two-layered thing that is that is the sort of base layer, um, which will be large, you know, a, a welfare state in a, lot, in a lot of ways and dealing with this huge amount of public debt. And then this enormously um, off-the-leash sort of free market um, system in order to pay for the base layer welfare state. Now, that's that's not a mixed economy by any means. That's actually a, a sort of two-layer economy. And that's that's not what we're... You know, any notion of us going back to where we were before is going to be a disaster in trying to achieve that. I think that's an interesting point. And it, it sort of picks up something that I was interested in um, discussing a little bit, which is how do you actually... Um, uh, what is the framework that one would use to promote this set of ideas? So uh, Jason sort of outlined what might be thought of as a, a Blairite third way kind of idea, which is we need the market economy in order to deliver, or in part anyway, to deliver some social services um, and also to help pay down debt. So we basically need, you know, the economy needs to grow faster than our growth to our debt in order to be able to get that down. Um I also wonder whether it's about sort of communicating more about the importance of jobs and enterprise, small business creation, home ownership, you know, things that touch people where they are in their lives. Um, because I think that rapid change and technological adaptation are actually very threatening to people. Um, and they, because they mean that, you know, a lot of people won't have control over these things, but their jobs and their lives will be changed pretty significantly. Some people will like it, some people won't like it. Um, which is part of the reason why I think a lot of people are by nature a bit um, wary of rapid change. And so it's a, it's a question of, you know, what would be the framework one would use to actually communicate this to the average person to um, bring, bring to their attention that this is something that we might need to be considering? I think a lot of it's already happened in, in the sense that, I mean, March was an incredible month that was horrifying and terrifying, but also just incredible in the sense of a huge amount of change happened very quickly globally and in a lot of ways just people figured out how to work from home they figured out how to suddenly change behaviors that they've been doing all their lives um, in a very short order in order to deal with with, a, with this crisis so we've demonstrated that we can actually change very very quickly when we need to and i think um you know we, we, it's, it's that spirit or that or that that um way of behaving that is going to continue. We've, we've actually proven that it can already happen as this, um, the, shift to hap the shift that needs to take place though is this notion of going back, this notion that that was temporary adjustment to deal with a thing and then everything goes back to normal afterwards. That's absolutely not what's going to happen. Um, what can I can I come in there too? I think I think it's a great question from Dan and um, certainly what we're talking about today uh, is, is a preferred uh, pathway uh, that I can see. One of the things that worries me um, and, uh, is that there will be alternative narratives out there and, and, and some of them are, are dodgy. Chris, um, in a future episode, we might come back to uh, this National COVID-19 Coordination Commission that Scott Morrison has set up a few weeks ago, which is supposed to be sort of a private sector-led response uh, to what we do, you know, after the unfreeze, and and I guess what what worries me is is that there's a difference between um, uh, planning on how you might achieve a recovery, which is what I think we've been talking about, as opposed to a planned recovery, which is what I think the push is going to be. Uh, this is a body chaired by uh, Neville Power. Uh, it has Greg Combay on it, Jane Holton, Paul Little, Catherine Tanner, David Thody very much a, an insider's kind of thing. I've certainly seen uh, already some of the press about it. Um, you know, people like Andrew Liveris and others seeing it as a great sign of hope uh, virtually for a re revitalization of, uh, of industrial policy in Australia. I'm not saying that all the people involved in it are um, uh, want to go back to sort of the rent-seeking ways of protectionism, but there was certainly a a sudden flash of inspiration that perhaps the, do the door was open again. And uh, this worries me that there will be these 
competing narratives and in the book you actually talk about that, that kind of old school industrial policy and you know R&D tax rebates and national champions and all this kind of thing whereas um, the innovation that we do need and it will include manufacturing uh, is, is, is not that kind of heavy manufacturing model from the past it, it, it's the people that we're seeing with the agility uh, to change their business models very rapidly just to cope with this pandemic and hopefully will change their business models very rapidly to to be ready for what's coming out the other side. That's right. It's a classic fallacy, isn't it? So um, a government, a, a, a relatively pro-private enterprise government identifies that the private, en- the, the private sector is better at handling lots of things than the government sector is. So it takes people from the private sector and turns them into bureaucrats on the hope that they would um uh they would bring some of the energy but that's not what we're talking about we're not talking about no. taking ceos and giving them power over the state and therefore the private sector will solve our problems now what we're much more interested in and what we think is most likely to be effective is um uh, going to be those sort of bottom-up entrepreneurial decisions and it's the sort of thing that we're thinking about um uh in in the way that we've tackled the crisis already um, so there's been a two-prong um, uh, approach to handling social distancing. The first one has been the government setting rules about what we can and can't do and setting the police to make sure that we're um, training our L-plater drivers in the right suburbs and all that sort of thing and checking that we're not sitting on a bench recklessly. Um, and But then there's the other stuff which I'm really interested in, which is the... Um, uh, the, the, the stuff that the private sector has done, the stuff that retailers have set up independently of government mandates to protect their staff, to protect us from, um, uh, from each other as necessary. So those perspex glass walls that we now see um, uh, at, at point of service um, in retail stores, the spacing that we're now seeing, all these sorts of independent private decisions. And, um, and when we think about countries that have done this with those different models, then um, with different models, there's been the, the full lockdown model like Australia has, has or the quasi full lockdown models. Um, and then there's those countries that have decided not to have government-led lockdowns like Sweden. But, but in Sweden, they've done a lot of these private sector initiatives already. And, and, and those are the private sector things that are, are getting us through the crisis. And we've got to take lessons from that and say, well, they're also the ones that will get us out of the economic crisis as well. They are the entrepreneurial decisions, not just putting um, some mining magnates in charge of a um, reopening commission um, funded by the federal government. Yeah, Chris, it's all of that, but it's also doing that on in a, in a digital economy, not in an industrial economy. The there's the um, powers and capabilities that are that are made possible by digital platforms for payments and contracting and governance and organisation and all of the sort of administrative layers of business are orders of magnitude better than they were you know decades ago in an industrial economy, and these are the sorts of opportunities that make it a lot easier to rapidly start businesses or pivot businesses or find ways to um, entrepreneurially discover innovation in, in this space. So a, the sort of the economic infrastructure now, digital economic infrastructure, makes um, the power of entrepreneurship so much more um, effective in, in this type of space, which is why there's just simply less need or less value in this type of high-level industrial planning commissions, you know, that, that once upon a time, you know, in the distant past may have had a role in coordinating industry recovery, but they just don't now at all. They're, they're almost irrelevant. So we should say that, in fact, our um, uh, approach to this is not um, uniformly shared. Um, uh, and Dan, I know that you've been looking at the uh, letter, the public open letter written by a large number of Australian economists to the Prime Minister about how to tackle the crisis and how to think about the crisis. So why don't you tell tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so this was a, a letter, an open letter written by um, well over 100 uh, economists, all of whom were at um, universities. Uh, basically making the argument that we shouldn't start to end the social distancing measures that are in place and the associated economic uh, lockdown that is the result of that Uh, and indeed that we uh, need to keep them in place for longer 
uh, and that we shouldn't be sacrificing, I'm paraphrasing this part, uh, shouldn't be sacrificing health for the sake of the economy. Now, uh, again, I'll return to my earlier observations about the hibernation strategy. Um, you know, the, these uh, academics are safely and gainfully employed uh, and completely sheltered from any of the downside consequence of their um, of their views. And this is one of the, I think, existential problems that we face, uh, not only with this crisis, but uh, with democratic governance in general in Australia and in many parts of the Western world, which is that those who are making decisions are the ones that suffer the consequences um, of those decisions should they go um, should they go badly. So um, what if we did extend the lockdown for six more months? Well, we know that that would prolong unemployment and cause further uh, social problems, uh, psychological and physiological problems that have uh, resulted from those um, lockdown measures. But um, those who are making the recommendations to undertake such a course of action are not the ones that are themselves going to suffer. And indeed, many of the expert class will benefit from this crisis. They will, in relative terms, have higher income, uh, they'll have more power, they'll have more prestige, and what we'll see is a, a bigger gap between the mainstream of the country and the elites, uh, because the elites really have forgotten about um, you know, the values of mainstream Australia, what it is that people need to get by in their life, and are just completely uh, removed and detached from uh, from any basis of reality that the average person encounters. So I just want to clarify: I have not signed that letter, Dan. Just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> present company accepted. Yeah. I think when it comes to academia. Um, so, so Jason, Jason, you've also been looking at it, and, and I know you've got some interesting. Yeah, I was. It, it was a bizarre letter. I was. I, I also haven't signed this, and I, I didn't sign it. Um, because it just strikes me as a very weird thing for economists to write that letter. Now, it's, I mean, there's a sense in which um, it's a letter calling for a, a government to not do a thing that they were never intending on doing anyway. So it's not quite clear what the purpose of it is. Um, this idea that science proceeds by consensus is also just nonsense as well. Like that's, that's, that's not how science is done. Um, or this, there's this notion that if we have a, that some sort of mythical consensus will have carry value here but the the broader point is, is is what's underneath this is this notion that um no one's debating that there are horrible choices to be made um it, in every direction it's 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 bad um the relevance of thinking like an economist in this at this point in time is precisely because every choice is bad and we need to weigh off the horrible choices in one direction against the horrible choices in a different direction and trying to sort of understand how we make a very difficult decision through this. So, um, you know, first of all, there there are trade-offs. Um, a shutdown economy is a very very bad thing um, um, in in different ways than than um, than the sort of public health crisis. Um, now, the other part of this is the notion that this is a pure. This will only be resolved with government action. Is, is also misleading here. Um, the private sector and, and, and just people don't like getting infectious diseases. They will actively try and avoid that. Um, that's you don't actually have to rely on law and legislation to, to try to enforce that. Um, so, so there is a private ordering response here, and and what the real balance here is is what the relationship between those two things are. So, I think it's it's it was just a it was a very strange letter for economists to make, essentially arguing that economics has nothing to say here, whereas there's a, there's a huge amount of of um, relevance in thinking this from an, thinking through this this enormously difficult problem from an economic perspective. Yeah. Uh, well, as long as we're piling on, <laughs> I'll add my my perspective. Um, uh the there was a a very useful paper which uh, uh little reported but it uh, came out from business council of australia this week they got port jackson partners to do some work and it's one of the few instances i've seen where um people have talked about the effect over time it's it's it's, it's another flaw in this idea of things freezing because uh their point is that well you know sort of as a as a first order approximation things can freeze you know a restaurant can close and then reopen or a factory can close and then reopen um and for a certain short period of time perhaps that's true yeah, a weekend or a public uh, holiday yes 
Yeah, ex- exactly. And, you know, maybe maybe a month, you know, we look at those charts of, you know, how much uh, operating cash does the average business have? And it dis- differs by industry and so on. And these are sort of the first order effects. And then obviously, as that gets longer and longer, um, the approximation doesn't hold because you come back and lo and behold, those businesses have not survived. But what they also identified was the second order effect, which is, you know, because I think the conception everyone on this podcast shares is that the the economy is a very dynamic, interconnected, um, complex, complex adaptive system, to use one one jargon phrase. And um, this idea that whole industry and 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 as that starts to unravel, as different businesses fall over, those the supply chains are interrupted. I read today, just for example, while everyone's talking about the airlines. Uh, and we have pictures circulating on the web of all the aeroplanes parked on the tarmac at Tullamarine Airport. Um, you know, a classic sort of hibernation model. The company that actually services all those airlines, Swissport, um, is in diabolical trouble and is laying off people. And when things allegedly unfreeze, may not actually have the capacity to you know, have the guys with the table tennis bats and the baggage handlers and you know the the ones who drive the planes around on off the off the tarmac. So these sort of second order effects start to increase, dare I say it, exponentially. And um, and so for these economists in their letter to just um, almost assume that we can just think of this as like a, a national accounts thing where there's just industry by industry. The economy doesn't work like that. It's a tremendously interconnected beast. And the, and the longer the freeze goes, the more destructive it is. Six months is more than twice as bad as three months. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it's the role of an economist to identify that interconnected nature of, of, of our economic relationships. It's to, it's to be able to understand... Um, even map those contracts, those um, supply chain relationships, and so forth. And you and you think so. There's not just the firm that um, uh, maintains the airplanes. There's also the accounting firm that um, services that firm. And then there's the firms that service those firms as well. All this huge network of relationships and supply chains. And so we've got the government. Now, this is not something that Scott Morrison has fallen into, but a lot of governments around the world have been telling us that some industries are essential, some some workers are more essential, some um, firms do more essential things. In fact, for, for, for forever, progressives have been trying to divide, oh, well, you don't, we don't really need that sort of industry. We don't need those sorts of products. Those are excessive or luxurious or wasteful or what have you. I think this crisis is showing us really vividly that it's all connected. Mm-hmm. Every firm ultimately is connected to the every other firm. Every worker has some economic relationship, however how distant, with everybody else. And you can't just take some of them and put them aside. You can't just shut down companies and assume that all the other companies are going to um, be just as productive or just as successful or just as profitable or, or employ just as many people. I think that to explaining that, explaining that web of connections, that's the job of an economist and to explain that making those sorts of decisions, maybe even if they were the right decisions to make, have awful, awful trade-offs, not denying those trade-offs, but to identify those trade-offs. So I might take this opportunity, uh, I promised at the top of the show that we would come back to the immediate problem before us, which is um, uh, before we can even get to the uh, uh, ascending part of the square root recovery that we want, um, we first need to, to find our way from phase one to phase two. And and what we've talked about on the podcast, Jason, in recent weeks is that we, we, we now have this paradox. We started off uh, flattening the curve, um, but we were so successful that there's, there's this mission creep now and, and more and more politicians and health experts are saying and Grattan Institute are saying, well, this is a chance to totally eliminate the virus in Australia. So they've, they've, they've shifted the goalposts and then hidden them, as I think the IPA has been saying. Um, so we, 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 have, we have that. And, and so we now have, in, what, in many ways, is a very vulnerable Australian population um, very vulnerable to the virus, that is, um, still in lockdown and the goalpost being shifted, it's it's not clear to me uh, how 
the government will actually find its way out of that. They're promising that they'll start doing so in three or four weeks. Uh, but measures like yesterday uh, allowing elective surgery again uh, is not, to me, an example of unfreezing an economy. This is just more sort of administrative tinkering with the uh, the COVID-19 response. How do we actually get out of this this trap that we've actually made for ourselves? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, yeah, so, hey, sorry, no, 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 yeah, I, me, did, I, I did throw that me, one on you. Let, yeah, me, yeah. Let, let me try and solve that one for you all. Um, so... <laughs> The first thing is, is is that that everyone's holding out hope for is is, is vaccine, right? So and, and until this by the virus goes away, there's no such thing as the virus going away. What we mean is we 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 develop a vaccine and everyone becomes protected against the presence of the virus. Um, so that's you know what is that? Two years, three years, five years? Um, uncertain amount of time in the future. Um, up to that point, the next thing is quarantine that you. You, you 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 build a a you don't let anything you in or out of, of the country um, now that's that's a whole other level of 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 um, difficulty um, just if we just go you know let's let's open up surgery again well a lot of the components of that surgery whether it's um, the sort of anesthetic inputs or surgeons themselves may well come from overseas so we're talking some kind of autarky that will need to be imposed um, that's hard in one way, but the other way is it just, it'll make us, there's a whole lot of things that Australia is not self-sufficient in. And, and in an enormously complex global economy, there's almost nothing that we are completely self-sufficient in. So there's a huge cost and difficulty associated with that. Um, but you know, this, short of those sorts of extreme measures, um, there really is no way from it to, 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 to be consistent about um, you know, complete public safety. So the other option is is, is what you know, Sweden is doing, is, is that you, you go back to that um, identify vulnerable parts of the population or self-identify and protect those. Um, I, I just don't see how we get from here to the next phase without switching a strategy to something more like that. Uh, I think that's right. And one of the interesting things that, uh, Jason has touched on is I think this and, and this will be a part of the ongoing debate uh, over the next weeks and months is uh, this uh, interconnected global economic system uh, which has been the basis of fairly substantial wealth creation has also arguably created a lot of local vulnerabilities um, and whether the current arrangements of that order is something that will sustain uh, in the post-COVID-19 economic world. Um, clearly, there's questions being raised about China's role and place in that trading system and whether uh, we need to be reorientating some of our supply chains, at least out of China, and towards countries that have more uh, friendly or at least more um, a, a, a based on a set of governing values and cultural values that are closer to our own, um, which is an important um Consideration, and I think there's also this. What's become apparent to me, anyway, is uh, the sort of contradiction between globalization and localism. Um, they're two things that are quite distinct, and I would argue you can't really have both. So, one one of the main ways in which you achieve a low regulatory environment, for example, is through decentralized governance. And one of the major challenges we have in Australia is, of course. We have a highly centralised um, governing regime, which is, uh, you know, Scott mentioned um, the old vertical fiscal imbalance, which is basically the Commonwealth raises a disproportionate share of funds, which I believe is the highest in the world, um, even greater than Canada, in the sense of how substantial the Commonwealth government role is. But that's in part arguably necessary to navigate the globalised economic world in which we live. And so one of the one of the challenges that we face, and this is one of the um, not necessarily contradictions, but different points of view on the right at the moment is well, uh, if we want to have local governance, we're going to have have to have some element of self sustaining local economies. Um, otherwise, it's difficult to see how you're going to have the the localized um, industry and 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 necessary critical mass in order to sustain that decentralized approach. So that's not something that I think we've really figured out exactly what to do, but I'm not convinced that more globalization and more of the same is something that's going to be um, 
necessarily the best answer to our troubles. So, Dan, can I just push back on that? Because I think what you're describing is is accurate in an industrial economy where the main things that are moving are physical commodities and people. And um, whereas in a digital economy, that doesn't apply. Um, the, there's no real sort of hazard and risks in, in this way when we're moving you know, bits around the world. It's atoms that are the problem here. And again, the sort of nation state regulatory environment is again um, optimized and built around this notion that it's physical things, it's, it's atoms and, and, and commodities and, and so on that's moving around. Um, we can build digital regulatory global platforms in the private sector. That's the, the whole sort of blockchain crypto space is nothing but that. Um, and what that enables us to do is to have a global internet-based trading um, economy that is moving digital objects around the world that are um, perfectly fine, completely safe from, from, from a sort of pandemic-y perspective in, in terms of these types of lockdowns. But the governance itself is platform governance. It's, it's on the digital platforms themselves, which, which can be um, privately built. They're voluntary. Um, you opt in, opt out of them. So I think we're at sort of an interesting point in history as well, where we've got this pivot between an industrial world order and its type of industrial globalization versus a new digital global economy and digital globalization. And digital globalization is fine. It's working really well. It's the industrial globalization that's failing. And the, this pandemic has put a wedge right in the middle of that, um, that we're still struggling to unpack here. And I, I think there's, globalization is not the problem per se. It's, it's, it's industrial globalization that's been threatened. I think there's, there's a trap here. So um, uh, what we need to do right now, um, or what we will need to do if we're going to return to 2019's prosperity, is absolutely maximize economic growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't make geopolitical decisions as well, and we can't go into it naively, a naive form of globalization. But we also have to be really, really careful that we are not making um, uh, making decisions on the basis of a once-in-a-century pandemic. We've had a massive amount of economic growth and development and prosperity precisely because of that globalization um, that we've enjoyed over the last few decades. And we need to ensure, if we're going to get out of this, we need to ensure that we're not um, deliberately suppressing our economy in order to pursue um, uh, other potentially mistaken goals. And I just think about um, the case for protectionism. So a lot of people have argued that the case for protectionism is stronger, at least the case for domestic manufacturing is stronger in a country like Australia, because we've discovered that we can't make our own face masks or, um, uh, or that we're su being supplied um, a lot of our antibiotics or what have you from around the world, not just China, but you know, Germany and other these, these other big um, industrial powers. Um, but but when I when I hear that argument, I can't help but think we we had protectionism. In fact, we had protectionism for the vast majority of the twentieth century, and we didn't build face masks, we didn't build antibiotics, we built cars, we built automobiles, and the reason we built that is because policymakers wanted to give cushy union jobs to car um, uh, to to manufacturing unions and so forth. So even if you had a, um, a, the next government decided that it was a good idea to, to build more local manufacturing. It wouldn't be driven by um, public health measures. It would be driven by political incentives. And those political incentives take us away from uh, ideal policymaking and to, towards politically motivated car manufacturing, for instance. But isn't, isn't globalization also a politically motivated policy? I mean... It's, it gets back to a fundamental conception of liberty, which is whether you sort of subscribe to the natural rights concept or a different conception of where our liberties come from. But I would argue that everything that we have, all, all the economic and social arrangements that we have, are the conscious decision made by people, either in their private capacity or by governments. It's not... Um, I just sort of push back against the idea that a, a completely unfettered say global market economy is a natural state of the world um, as many and I'm not disputing the the substantial and very important benefits that have accrued from that I'm not disputing that nor arguing for protectionism but I'm sort of just arguing against a little bit the the concept that there's a natural state of the world 
and that any deviation from that is is a political decision, but any movement towards that preferred state of the world is not a political decision. They're both political decisions. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that it's. A, I don't know that it's a natural state of the world, but um, it's definitely a liberty-minded state of the world. Insofar as I want the right to be able to trade with people overseas, I want the right to be able to trade with people overseas without the government taking a cut, which is of course a tariff, or the government imposing a quota, or the government preventing me from making an exchange with someone in Germany or the United States or Chile or China. I want to be able to have the right to do that because that's that's a that's a private relationship between those two independent people. It shouldn't have the government involved. So I, I, I think it's a, a it's a, um, a misleading path to go down to say that, well, it's a claim on what the natural state of affairs should be. It's much more, yes, it's a political decision, but it's a political decision to allow me the liberty to make my own choices about who I trade with. Yeah, but so, so yeah, it's I, natural, I, it's a or not, it's a liberty thing. Well, I'm, I'm going to sorry, I'm, I'm going to jump in, guys, because I, I have a slightly different take. I, I think uh, the issue that Dan's raised uh, is a legitimate one, but um, to me, it it doesn't necessarily lead to. We don't need to relitigate old old debates. I mean, this this is something that uh, is, is addressed in business terms as just supply chain resilience. I mean, with with the issues that have come up, say with China in the last few years, um, very complex physical uh, products and also services that are assembled uh, for consumers, you know, with with parts or inputs from all over the world, you know, l- companies have to have been focusing on the resilience of their supply chain and realizing that you can't just use a simple decision rule of you know least cost wins every time. Uh, companies that have been doing that have been burnt, have been burnt by um, uh, IP theft, but also availability. You know, I think uh, I certainly do think that this has highlighted that a, that a world built on built on you know always lowest cost inputs, always just in time manufacturing, is probably not the world that we we're going to get back to for quite a while. And I think, and I think nations too. I don't. I don't. I think some questions around supply chain resilience. Are reasonable questions to ask. Um, just to say, Jim Molan has campaigned for years uh, about meeting benchmarks for crude oil reserves, not because crude oil is expensive, it's certainly not, it's very cheap at the moment. <laughs> it's not um, just cheap. But, be- but because <laughs> um, if, if the tankers can't actually arrive in the country, then you run out of petrol and diesel very, very quickly. That is a, a supply chain resilience question that we as a nation have to grapple on. And I think, uh, and we'll grapple with it in other things too. I suspect that we'll, we'll decide in six months' time uh, that, the, you know, the medical, issue, medical device issues are not as big as we thought they were. I mean, God, how many companies around the world are now furiously building ventilators with just at the time when no one is actually on ventilators because... A, the number of acute cases is not as high as we thought it was going to be, and B, uh, they don't necessarily do as much good as we thought they would do. So, you know, there was an example of a reaction to an identified issue in the supply chain that, you know, it just we won't even be talking about it in a year's time. We won't, we won't need a government strategy for ventilators. Yeah, um, that's right. And, um, and the idea, obviously, the private sector has found this hard enough to plan what it needs. The idea that the government would be better at doing so is obviously, obviously um, nuts. Now I know Jason um, has a hard out, um, a hard deadline to leave. So I, I, I think we should probably wrap it up. But I did want to point out, which I did not. At the top of but the you did. But you, you will take the last I will word, take won't the you, last Chris? Word, of course. But I did want to point out because I failed to do so at the top of the show that Jason and I didn't aren't the only authors of this book. Um, this book would not have been possible without our co-author. But what's the title so of the, the book? Title of you the haven't book. actually told us so what the, the title, title is. of the book is Cryoeconomics: How to Unfreeze an Economy After a Pandemic. It's written by um, uh, Jason, myself, as well as Darcy Allen, Aaron Lane, and Sinclair Davidson. All names well known to IPA audiences and free market. All, in fact, adjunct fellows of the IPA. Well done, gentlemen. Um, uh, And it's going to be published with the American Institute for Economic Research in coming weeks. Um, uh, We've literally just sent the manuscript off and we're hoping that it comes out as soon as possible because, as we can see, um, there is a need um, right now to talk about the policies that will set us up for prosperity once again. Certainly is. 
thank you all for coming onto this show via various digital devices. A big thank you also to uh, Josh Stranger for for wrangling the tech. Um, notwithstanding anything Jason said, um, I'm not I'm not sure the digital responses necessarily <laughs> led to 100% perfect solutions. But uh, it, we do approach perfection more and more with every episode of looking forward in this new working from home environment um don't forget looking forward is a product of the institute of public affairs uh if you'd like to join or donate understand our research please do go to ipa.org.au where you'll also find some bios on the people that you've been listening to today a big thank you to my co-host chris berg thank you scott uh our special guest jason potts thank you scott and our director of research daniel wild thank you scott pleasure And a big thank you to you, the listener. You've been listening to Looking Forward. We'll be back with more next week. 